It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 4th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the leader of Jackson's water system is being tasked with another project, the city's sewer system. Then, Mississippi Blood Services is asking folks to donate blood and help save lives. Plus, the governor declares October 2nd through the 7th fall severe weather preparedness week. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The city of Jackson's sewage system is under new management. The same court-appointed expert who is overseeing the water system is taking on the assignment. U.S. District Court Judge Henry Wingate appointed Ted Hennepin to the role, saying issues like sewage in the streets is unacceptable. The decision comes following a 30-day public comment period where residents call for transparency in the operation. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with the third-party administrator about what led to the current state of broken sewage lines. There are at least 215 throughout the city. Uh, Similar to the water system, it just seems like uh, a long-term lack of investment, uh, lack of resources, so I don't really know how we got that way in the water system either, but this seems like older core cities across the country where disinvestment, uh, white and black flight uh, have created, you know, redu- it's a shrinking city, so a smaller tax base, smaller rate base, and the investments just weren't made, and they may not have had the resources to do that. I can't really understand, uh, you know, put myself back in time to those, why there were no resources, but it just seems like a, a just lack of investment. These are, of course, additional duties for you. You've been focused on drinking water since your appointment. Have there been any changes, updates, or improvements in how the water system is being run that give you more room on your plate for sewage treatment tasks? I think a lot of the, the challenges early with the water system were we didn't have a lot of systems in place. So there were no systems for you know, the, the mapping was lacking, the, the information on the system itself, the valves, the a work order system, the call center, all those things not being in place when we started with the water were you know, part of the and financial systems and tracking. So having to put all that in place and be dealing with the water crisis at the moment back in, a year ago took a lot of time and energy. Uh, those have largely settled out. It's no longer a crisis by any stretch. You know, we were providing water daily, it's safe, it meets all drinking water standards. 
our pressure issues have been largely resolved just by uh, opening lots and lots of valves and understanding more about the system. Uh, we've got tremendous amount of work still to do on investments in the system, valve replacements, some new pipes, eventually booster stations, other things to make sure that the, the pressure can be always uh, maintained without uh, some of the challenges we've had in the past. Uh, we're in a good spot. We've got a good plan, and uh, that work continues on a, on a regular basis. So I wouldn't say that there's a lot of free time on the calendar as a result of that, but what, what we do have is a, a good plan, again, going forward on the sewer, uh, benefiting from some of the systems we've already put in place. Q Solutions, she's actually based out of Atlanta, but she also has a house in Jackson and has worked last 20 years off and on with the sewer system in Jackson. And she's been brought under uh, Jackson Water's contractor resource to so we'll help direct what's going on. And we've already had a success in addressing maybe 30 of the 300 or so overflows that uh, have been plaguing Jackson for a long time. So combination of applying the same basic strategy of time and material contractors to do find and fix work. So they, you find the overflow, figure out what needs to be fixed. You have a contractor available just to immediately excavate uh, find the problem, replace the, the pipe that's broken, uh, backfill and clean it up, and we have a great paving crew that's been doing all the, the restoration work after we do that, following behind that, and, and we're making great progress. And so to the extent that a lot of those can be done uh, in fairly short order, that will be the focus probably for the first year or more of our sewer work. It's just those, we need to get the sewer off, off the streets, and that is job one for us. Yes. Now, speaking of that uh, sewage appointment, moving into the present now, this is coming from a federal court order. What requirements are the feds giving you? What are the what demands are you getting from that judge? It's very parallel to the water order where there were 13, I think, in the water order. So uh, those projects are really the, the main focus. It's to stabilize the system, uh, make some needed repairs in both the sewer treatment plants and the distribution system or the collection system. I think the, then the rest of it is reporting, and then sewer, sewer uh, systems need certain plans to meet regulatory requirements. We've got to update and revise a lot of the plans around fog and uh, or fats, oils, and grease, which you know, one of the one things that plague sewer systems is people disposing of grease down their drains. It hardens in the pipes. It causes blockages, which causes overflow. Uh, we're going to step up work around that, so there'll be a lot more both communication, and I think we're looking at some creative uh, programs to help the small food service establishments maintain their their grease interceptors, um, less burden on them from an operational standpoint. So we've got a, a number of ideas we've tossed around and we'll be hitting the ground pretty fast. Now, the press release says you and your team will be working on the sewage system for the next four years. Talk to me about where that specific time frame is coming from. The water order is over when the judge says it's over. So he needs to have confidence that the system is stable and in sustainable shape going forward. On the sewer side, the Department of Justice really wanted to get back to a a traditional consent decree type of enforcement action. And so they added this uh, four-year term for the sewer order and with the expectation that they'd be back under a consent decree in four years. I expect that we can get the priority projects done and the all the dry weather overflows, which have plagued the system, are done within that four-year time. What won't, what, what won't happen and what most of this uh, traditional enforcement around is on wet weather capacity to make sure that the system 
can handle uh, any kind of rains and floods with minimal impact to the environment. And last question for you, Mr. Hennepin. What realistic expectations should the city have on the progress made on this issue? Yeah, we're dedicated. I think we'll have most of these uh, existing dry weather overflow locations where sewers running into the streets and the yards and into the backyards. And we'll have those finished within two years and hopefully earlier. Ted Hennepin has been overseeing Jackson's water system since last November. He will provide updates on his progress with the sewage system. Up next, Mississippi Blood Services is asking folks to donate blood and help save lives. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Many shelves in the state's blood bank are beginning to look bare. Mississippi Blood Services is calling on folks across the state to donate blood, saying we're in a crisis. Our Will Stribling speaks with Christopher Swafford, CEO of Mississippi Blood Services, about the shortage. He says the pandemic has changed a lot about how people donate, and the organization is trying to adapt. We, uh, right now, are uh, in the middle of a, a shortage, especially of platelet products. That's something that is needed every day for oncology patients, for patients with hemophilia. Um, There's certain red cell types as well, like O negative and A negative and B negative red cells that we need. Um, those are used a lot for patients that are in emergency um, trauma kind of situations. So we need to collect about 200 units of, of, of blood a day, and that's something that right now we're running anywhere from 130 to 150 units a day. Um, you know, most folks don't get up in the morning and think, hey, I want to go donate blood. Uh, most people say that the number one reason that they don't donate blood is because they've not been asked to. So, you know, our job is to get out and motivate and educate the community that Mississippi Blood Service is only, we're only the steward of the blood supply. It takes volunteer donors to come out every day to make sure that the patients within our hospitals are cared for. So, uh, again, our, our job is to get out there and educate, especially as we're getting closer to the holidays. Uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, people are traveling, people have competing priorities, and that's when there seems to be a lot more of an opportunity for a shortage. Mm-hmm. More accidents, that sort of thing, just a greater need during the holiday season? Yes, sir. It's um, it, it can be a combination of a lot of different things. I think that what you'll find, too, is that there are accidents, but there's also just regular treatments, you know, sickle cell patients. Uh, that is a huge need that we have to help support in this community. Um, We need to be able to have folks who are from all different ethnic backgrounds to come in and donate to make sure that we have the right uh, units for a very diverse population. We've found through uh, a lot of study that the closer someone is genetically as a donor to a patient, the better off the transfusion response is. So we have a whole team of folks in our lab who are testing units to find the closest match for a patient. And so we partner very closely with the hospitals to make sure that genetically the units of blood that we're supplying to be transfused are as close as possible to that that patient's actual uh, genetic makeup. So how how long have y'all been in this the 130 to 150 
range under oh, just uh, you know less than, than than what you need. It, if I understand correctly, it's been I've been going on for a while. Um, generally through the summer, uh, donations drop off. So we're really coming out of that that summer collection period. Uh, about 16% of the blood we collect is from high schools and from college students. So during the fall and spring, we're able to go and, and do blood drives with our local high school students, our local college students. During the pandemic, you know, there were a couple years where there were no collections within high schools and colleges because everyone was learning remotely. So we're having to rebuild the way that we uh, educate, our, especially our student population. A lot of places where we would go to, to previously before the pandemic where maybe an organization had an office building of 300 folks working in it, now those people may work remotely. So whereas we used to be able to go to a, a office building and do a large blood drive of 150 folks, uh, now maybe there's only 50 folks working in that office. So we're having to find new ways to recruit donors into either our fixed sites or going back out to offices and having folks maybe come in that were teleworking. Churches are very important to us. We need to be able to to go and, and work within our local churches on Wednesdays and Sundays and, and Saturdays with our synagogues. And uh, there, there's a lot of different folks that um, allow us to come in. But what we find is we have to adapt our operations to go and, and collect where and when the donors are available, not necessarily Monday through Friday, 8 to 430. Yeah. And so it's not that, you know, that donation behavior has changed per se, other than you say like it does during the seasons, it's that that there aren't as many people at the places y'all used to go to. Exactly. Anymore. So we're having to change the way that we, we uh, go out and collect. Uh, we're looking at uh, setting up some new satellites, some new offices in different locations uh, within the communities that we serve. That's going to be very important for us, especially for collecting platelets. For us, it's the, the need hasn't changed. It's like you said, it's just the way in which people are available to donate has changed. The other thing, too, is the, uh, the average donor age is much past 50 years old. So there's a, a big drop-off when it comes to... So you can, you can start donating when you're 16 years old with parental consent. And our 16 to 30-year-old demographic has really dropped off. Uh, a lot of different reasons for that, but we're going to really have to work hard to to educate the younger generations to come and replace those older donors who they may be uh, not able to donate because diseases, because of medications they're on, uh, just a whole different uh, group of of reasons why people might not be able to donate. So we need our, our our younger folks to step up and start taking the place of those who have given many, many, many gallons, but just maybe aren't able to do that anymore. In, in your view, what, what are some big uh, misconceptions or just your layperson has about about this this industry or the donation process or just like or just things that people just generally just have wrong? Sure. You know? Well, one is that our, our products uh, expire uh, probably more quickly than people think. So platelets are only good for five days before they expire. You can only donate platelets every two weeks, though. Red cells are only good for every forty two days. But you can only donate every 56 days. So I think some people think, you know, when they go and donate that unit of blood that it's going to be on the shelf for the next year available. And it's not. Um, the, the other thing, too, is that um, we found that most folks uh, donate on average once a year. And so people will say, yeah, I'm a regular blood donor, but they may not have donated in a couple of years. So it's, it's getting out and educating people that if everyone that is eligible to donate could donate two or three times a year, a lot of these blood shortages would, would be relieved. 
I think the other misconception is that um, someone else is going to go donate. You know, it, it's our personal responsibility, I feel like, in this community to step up and donate for the patients in need. So everyone who is healthy and well, uh, they need to step up and either help set up a blood drive within their, their church, their school, their civic organization, their business, or make an appointment to come into one of our facilities and donate. Not everyone is able to donate, and so I think the thought that someone else will do it is probably pretty prevalent in a lot of communities, and it's just not the case. We all have to step up and take that responsibility to make sure that patients in our community are well taken care of. Christopher Swafford is CEO of Mississippi Blood Services. Up next, cool fall temperatures can come with some severe weather. We talk with the state's disaster response agency. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. We're back. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is reminding folks to have a plan for severe weather this season. The governor declared this week fall severe weather preparedness week. As the temperatures begin to drop, severe storms will become more likely. Allie Jasper, communications officer with MEMA, says planning can help avoid tragedy and speed recovery. For the fall severe weather season, we're talking about severe thunderstorms, flash flooding, tornadoes, things like that. And really in Mississippi, those can happen any time of the year, but we have two major seasons for that, and one is in the spring and one is in the fall. So to be prepared for this, I would say just start simple and talk with your family and know what your plan is. If you get one of those warnings, where are you and your family going to go to seek shelter and to be safe to ride out that storm? What do you need to do ahead of time to be prepared before you hear that siren or you're watching a weather forecast or hearing one that um, severe weather is approaching? So the first step is just to be weather aware. Watch your local meteorologist. Pay attention to the radar. Use your phone apps just to know that severe weather is coming and you can keep an eye on it. Second, identify your safe place in your house. Usually it's going to be on a bottom floor in a center room that has no windows around it. Make sure that your family knows that if a alarm goes off, that is where you're all going and that's where you're going to take shelter and ride out that storm. Third of all, be prepared for any prolonged power outages that may come with that. Have a disaster go kit. That disaster go kit can be as expansive or as simple as you would like it to be. Some food, some water, a flashlight, things like that. You can even go into a first aid kit if you would like to. We say that you need to be prepared for at least 72 hours after the storm to keep your family fed and have water. Then there's the other part about documents. People like, oh, putting papers together. Mm -hmm. I know that's something everyone probably should do regardless if there's severe weather or not. But what are the primary documents that people should have on hand in case of severe weather? 
we can speak to this because we just saw it in Rolling Fork. So many people lost all of their belongings, and they had to kind of start from scratch when it came to things like their insurance papers. They had no birth certificate. Their driver's license was lost. They had no way to renew that because they had no identification. So if you could put those things in some sort of waterproof portfolio or folder, something where you can keep it safe. Also, a lot of people in Mississippi like to keep them in safes, but those safes can get water in them. The most important things that you should have, definitely your insurance papers, a birth certificate, social security, and then just a copy of your driver's license. The storm hits at night. You've got this um, waterproof container, but your home is destroyed and everything is everywhere. You manage to get out. What are the chances that you're going to find those items in the midst of all of that? That's why we also say that you should back those copies up digitally so that you have a copy on your phone when you get a phone. If you lose your phone, you can also, you know, they're on the cloud and you can get them that way. Um, If you have access to a computer later on, you have them backed up in your email, something like that. Have them digitally so that if you do lose those paper copies, you have a way to kind of start over from there. For people who say, well, you know, I live alone. I don't have anywhere to go. What am I going to do? So before the storm, identify a safe place in your home. If you do not have a safe place in your home, call your neighbors. See if they have a place where you can go if there's a storm. Anywhere where there's a sturdier building. And mostly if you're in a mobile home, that's when you really want to get outside of your home. But if there is a storm alert and you're in a standard house, just pick the most interior room with no windows and get into that room and ride the storm out there. Otherwise, just talk to your family, um, talk to your neighbors, talk to any Anyone who you might can get to quickly when a storm alert goes off. Say you live in a trailer, would a grocery store be a decent option? Absolutely. We say that anything is probably going to be safer than a mobile home when it comes to tornadoes. The statistics are just there, and they just don't hold up well in those tornadoes. So any sturdy building that is closest to you get into that building. And if you can't find a building, get into a ditch and cover your head and just ride out the storm. What are some of the other things that need to be pointed out that would help folks? I know like a storm shelter, but those I assume are pretty expensive. Exactly. They are. And some communities do have storm shelters. So you could locate the storm shelter that is in your community. But if it's not near you and you haven't gone before that warning comes, you may not make it to the shelter. So that's why we say if you're in a mobile home and not a standard home, then just locate the nearest place that is closest to you and sturdy. Should families be practicing any of this with their kids? Absolutely. We say that you should practice it, make your plan known. You can make a copy of your plan and hang it on the refrigerator so that everybody can see where you're going and what what if we're at school, where should we go, have important phone numbers on there. And also, you should just be practicing this with your family twice a year. We have a statewide tornado drill that's going to be conducted at 9.15 on Wednesday, and that is when we encourage schools and businesses to practice their plan And then those children can go home and talk to their parents about it and say, hey, we know where our safe place is at school. Can you tell us where it is at home? 
Okay, and for those who have elderly relatives... One of the things that you can do there is, like I said, stay weather aware, watch the forecast, listen to your local meteorologist so that you know if a family is, if your family is going to be in the path of that storm, that you can get to them a little bit quicker and prepare earlier in the day. We also have the MEMA app that you can download and you can pinpoint different locations throughout the state. If you have a family member living in another part of the state, you can pinpoint their location to get alerts for their area so you can be aware of the weather for them if need be. Allie Jasper with Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Thank you for helping us with all of this good information. Absolutely. Glad to help. Testing of the National Weather Alert Systems are scheduled today. They will include alerts on cell phones, radios, and TVs. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.